When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 13th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll discuss Fox's sabermetric-friendly alternate broadcast of the National League Championship Series and what this means for the future of sports television. We'll also talk about Heisman favorite Todd Gurley's suspension by the University of Georgia due to allegations he got money for autographs, plus reigning Heisman winner Jameis Winston's upcoming disciplinary hearing at Florida State. We'll talk to Devorah Myers about the dominance of American gymnast Simone Biles, who won four gold medals at the World Championships in China. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, the Culture Gab Fest, Stephen Metcalf will join us for a Jets Kvetch. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Happy Canadian Thanksgiving, Stefan. What do they celebrate on Canadian Thanksgiving? What are they thankful for in Canada? They have a lot to be thankful for. They've got the the national health care. They've got the Rouge. Rouge. Um, The ones who aren't Maple Leafs fans have that. They've got a lot of great comedians. They have Mm. Flames and Canucks. Mm -hmm. And Alouettes. You know what Lifehouse is? They have Rough Riders. Do they still have Rough Riders? Or was that one of the and the Rough Riders? They have either changed. the Rough Riders or the Rough Riders. Oh, sorry. I don't know why. I thought Lifehouse was maybe Lighthouse. Oh, Lighthouse is the Canadian band. Lifehouse is American. My bad. And I think <laughs> I think Rouge has it. I think the Rouge has its own day. Rouge mm-hmm. Day in November. It's actually right. an hour November after 18th. a regular day. 
It's yes. the day. It's the day when uh, you expand the clock. So there's 25 hours in that day, and they give that extra hour to the rouge. I think it's just a minute, isn't it? Yeah, the rouge. Man. Just a little, little bit. The rouge. Hey, Mike. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. Wait, um, so I was trying to ba- I was trying to bait you there because uh-huh. I heard you on here and now last week, okay. and the host said thank you, and you said you're welcome. Right, which I thought was a little bit like weird. There's a, it I think struck this me is as a, weird. This is that a, you said this you're is a, welcome. This is an NPR topic of conversation, isn't it, Mike Pasca? Whether you should say thank you back. I usually say thank you back. I always say thank you back, but Mike said you're welcome, and I wanted to interrogate okay. him yeah. about that. Sure, I've had many discussions about this in the in my entire history of doing what we call two ways on two the ways. radio. I mistakenly, weekly, rouge ways, said, as they call them, in said Canada. said thank you once. I always say you're welcome. And I get congratulated on it by the exact sort of people <laughs> who tear me apart for my usual mispronunciations of things. But yeah, I always say you're welcome. To me, it's become my signature sign-off. Well, why did you by say doing it? things the right way? We do it the right way here. I say you're welcome the way it was meant to be said. Why did you say thanks for having me when I just said thanks? Because we weren't done with the conversation. Oh. All right. Yeah. Like if I say, if you in the beginning said, okay, Mike, thanks for being on, I'd say, yeah, no problem, or it's my pleasure, or whatever. But at the end, to button it, thank you, you're welcome. Well, a lot of thought has gone into this. Sure. I don't, but there's also a, a, a deference thing. I mean, I've thought about this. I always, I always say reflexively say thank you back. I don't say thank so you back. So then it's not a thought. It's I a say, reflection. Thank you. It's, it's right. a reflection. Well, but I thought about it, and I still continue to reflex. All right. On Saturday night... Thank you for that. The San Francisco Giants beat the Cardinals 3-0. You're welcome. Behind the pitching of Madison Bumgarner, no problem, to take game one of the National League Championship Series. That series is being broadcast by the Fox Family of Networks, and you can listen to Joe Buck, Harold Reynolds, and Tom Verducci call the game on the regular old Fox Network. But if you tune into Fox Sports 1, there was an alternate broadcast featuring Fox Sports' lead baseball columnist Rob Nyer. You had uh, Bud Black, who manages the Padres, C.J. Nitkowski and Gabe Kapler, former players, hosting duties filled by Kevin Burkhart. Um, and on that telecast, I heard very many strange things, Stefan. I, hear, I heard talk of BABIP and WRC+. I heard word of XFIP and all these other abbreviations that you'll come across if you read about baseball on the internet, but not usually if you listen to talk of baseball on the television. So, did Stephen, you a whisper of VORP? I did. I heard a burbling a of the It was a susan of VORP. <laughs> um, but what did you make of this uh, presentation, Stefan? I enjoyed. I enjoyed. And I have some criticisms, but overall I enjoyed. I thought that it is the direction that... I hope that broadcasting live sporting events will go in the future. And by that, you take intelligent conversation and you throw in appropriate analytics that are comprehensible, that you can display graphically, and you can show and explain to viewers what they mean. And basically what you throw out is a lot of the nonsense, You throw out a lot of the atmospherics. You throw out a lot of the anecdotal bullshit. You throw out the endless cuts to fans wiping their eyes in the stands and chewing their fingernails. I mean, it certainly was a broadcast, you know, for a viewer that wants to understand more about the intricacies of what's happening, even though, and this is going to trend toward the criticism, I'm going to leave this for a follow-up answer, but the the main... You're welcome. Thank you. um, (laughs) Even though... What tends to happen is that you sort of lose sight for the mo- of the moment of what's going on in the field, 
for the sake of a larger conversation about the sport and this sort of broader portrait of numbers and how they, they, they affect the game. Well, yeah. I for, think, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that this was good. This is good in the, in the um, type of thing where you do uh, maybe go overboard and you have shock troops and uh, in order to make the point that... I don't know, like a, a radical magazine based on, you know, just one line of thought. Uh, let's take uh, the great magazine Bust, right, which was uh, this feminist magazine. And it really I mean, this was basically uh, all they wrote about. But that kind of thinking got incorporated and gently began to leach into a whole bunch of other magazines. And even though there are online magazines like Jezebel, you go to a place like Slate and there is, you know, double X. And that's, I think, what's going on. Like, I would not This is like want the Republican to... primaries. You have like a far-right candidate who some of his more radical ideas get incorporated into right, the, right. And into I, the I don't even Romney think... platform. Right. And I don't even know if, I mean, I'm sure Rob Nyer would like to win beyond the broadcast forever. And I like Rob a lot. But I think what the thing is, you do this, you take the best of it. You convince the executives who say, look, in the postseason is when we expand to, you know, people who don't watch the sport. And it has been a truism that the way to hook those people is the exact opposite of what they're doing with the broadcast to emphasize the personal, to have a million shots of people praying. But it's just because it's cold in October and people like to cover their noses with steepled fingers, all right? But that's supposed to build the drama, and in some ways it does. Um, oh, it's the thing I hate the so most. So a, a stats-only broadcast is kind of antithetical to what we think about when sports, when the appeal of a sport expands in the postseason. But I do think it's showing that the best of the stats-only broadcast absolutely can be incorporated seamlessly and help everyone, especially because baseball is a really slow game. So it doesn't take that much time to kind of define a stat. So instead of saying, you know, walked 30 batters and in 60 innings, you know, give you the the bases on balls per nine inning stat, put it in a little context. By the way, you do that for two seasons, then everyone will know what the base on balls for nine inning stat is and means. So let's give a specific example of kind of different treatment of the same subject on the alternate broadcast and on the main Fox one. So I was watching the uh, discussion of Pablo Sandoval on um, the Fox Sports one, the alternate broadcast, and they talked about how Sandoval is really good as a left-handed batter, really bad as a right-handed batter. He's a switch hitter. And Rob Nyer was saying, you know, if you look at the numbers, 824 OPS this year is a lefty, 563 is a righty. That's not like a super advanced stat, but it shows you basically he's really awesome as a lefty, really shitty as a righty. Um, And Rob says, you know, understandably, maybe he should only bat left-handed. And they have kind of a discussion about it. It's interesting. Then um, I was watching last night's game. They're talking about Sandoval comes up in this important spot and talking about, do you want to turn him around? Do you want to make him bat right-handed? And Verducci is not getting into, like, in-depth in the stats, but saying he's a lot better as a lefty. And then Harold Reynolds pipes up and says, he doesn't know the numbers, but he doesn't he doesn't need to look at the stats to know that Sandoval is a left-hander. And that's the part that really bothers me. It's the aggressive lack of interest by the it's like aggressive anti intellectualism right. of by of the main color commentator. Right. And I think and this is also I've talked about this before. It's what bothers me about, for example, Vern Lundquist on college football broadcasts. I have like kind of a first do no harm. Like I think that announcers don't necessarily add that much or don't subtract that much, but it just really bothers me when somebody's either aggressively anti intellectual or just like gets basic facts wrong repeatedly. And that just doesn't seem like it's punished all that much in the marketplace 
of sports broadcasting. And so that is the the contrast that I noticed. It's, um, you know, and when you watch people talking about this stuff intelligently, it stands out more kind of in stark relief that there is somebody who's, you know, on the main network saying, don't pay attention to this. It's stupid. Right. <laughs> and part of that is that Sabermetrics has been turned into this bogeyman that it's for nerds and it is unintelligible. And what CJ Nitkowski and Gabe Kapler demonstrated on this broadcast, that it doesn't have to be. I thought they were terrific. They are great talkers. They were able to marshal evidence and statistics when it was appropriate, and they were able to explain them in simple, comprehensible terms, comprehensible to all viewers. They also did demos, like they were talking about Wainwright being on a particular side of the rubber and how that would affect the the right-handed and left-handed batters. But Mike, one question I had for you, and this is kind of um, arguing against my previous point, but I feel like what television does really well is the atmospherics. And I was just wondering, watching this broadcast, maybe this is actually too late because I can turn the sound off or do whatever, do something else while I'm watching the game, not pay attention to what Joe Buck is saying, and get all of this expert commentary from Twitter in real time. And it's not like actually mucking up the screen. And, you know, they were doing a split screen on the alternate Fox broadcast, and maybe they can come up with a better way to demonstrate it. But I don't feel like the there's an absence of real-time commentary online like if you want to view the game in a certain way i don't know i think it sort of lags i don't think you're getting the best minds i mean i'm i have a on hooch suite i have a sports only twitter feed so sometimes during a game actually to be honest i would use that when i was at these games when i was covering these games last year but still you know there's a lot of signal to noise and rob nor nyer who was in the broadcast is a guy I follow and he'll have good points, but then a bunch of people won't. And then a bunch of people will be making silly cracks. So I guess you can go to a specific site. You can go to fan graphs and just follow the live discussion. But I thought this was, this was the best. This was the pinnacle. It wasn't just the idea, the exact people that they had executing it. Kevin Burkhart, who's great. Kapler and Nitkowski, the former players were fantastic. Nair was doing exactly what you want the nerd in chief to do. You know what? If that exact crew were told to do the regular Fox Sports game and don't even emphasize the numbers more than you naturally would right. as you think right. about it, it would be an improvement on Joe Buck and Harold. Uh, Absolutely. And I don't right. know that you need five. The fifth person there was Bud Black, the manager of the San Diego Padres, who was terrific too, I thought. I thought he mm-hmm. contributed in extremely helpful ways. Um, five- Talking about how they put on the infield shift against these specific batters when they And they talked the about that. So I didn't I only I didn't watch both games, but I watched the Sunday game. And you know, they were getting in depth about it's not as if the regular broadcast was totally devoid of this. Right. And they were talking and they would diagram how the Cardinals wheel play would work against bunts. It's not a bad broadcast in terms of if you're a stats guy. The stat heavy one is I prefer. I don't prefer a middle ground. I prefer something more along the stats line, but with all those great shots. They have so many great camera angles in these games and I just want to do an analysis I'd love for a film expert to talk to compare a major league baseball game to the good the bad and the ugly or some other great movie where they use close-ups because in a baseball game they go from pitcher's eyes to batter's eyes to manager to pitcher to batter to a fan and the way they just use the visuals to build up the tension it's amazing in these postseason games they do such a good job marry that to the smart stats we've got a great broadcast see I think Fox overdoes it and I've been arguing this for 20 years that they Fox kind of helped invent this. They really 
it was a deliberate strategy on Fox's part over the course of the nine innings to ratchet up the intensity of the close-ups and the addition and the, how many times they cut to fans and cut to the pitcher's brow and cut directly to the batter's face. I think you lose a lot when you don't see a broader scope of the field, and I think that's part of baseball too, and I think that's gotten eliminated too much. And I think the sabermetric type of analysis sort of screams for more of the broader pan of the field to see what fielders are doing, to see what the catcher's doing, to see what, you know, what the manager's doing. Here's the part of the broadcast that I found sort of unnerving. It's that I felt very disconnected from the game watching the the special broadcast. I felt like I was deconstructing the game rather than experiencing the game. I missed the the ambient sound of the stadium and I missed some of the play by play because they very often just glossed over the play by play. And we're having a broader conversation. So, Mike, I think you're right. I think there's got to be a a way to marry these two so that you don't lose the exciting feeling of I'm watching a live sporting event and I'm connected to it. But at the same time, I want to have a more intelligent conversation occurring on the television set while I'm watching the game. And the drawback to Twitter for me is that I take my eyes off of the screen and yeah. I feel like I lose track of the train of the game. And right. if I want to no, really be involved right. in the game, I, I got to watch. There's no, the there's way, no time in a baseball game to take your eyes off the screen. You obviously have to be paying attention every second in a baseball game. But by the way, I think that's why I think the big disconnection was that they did split screen so often. It emphasized the point that you're watching guys watching a game as opposed to watching a game right. and hearing guys. And by the way, a large part of this has to be that they just didn't have the space to throw all those people mm-hmm. in there in this stadium or they haven't done it before and they weren't confident enough to pull it off technologically. I understand why they did it remotely, but it seemed remote. That was the feeling you got. They did a remote and then you wound up feeling more remote. And I really hope that the Fox people came away from that thinking we should try this in the stadium. And maybe not with five people, but we should try it in the stadium, in a booth, so that we can marry the two concepts of the traditional atmospheric broadcast with the smarter broadcast. And and let's note that Turner did experiment with home team broadcasts on some of their um, like true TV and TBS. Cause that's the what Final we need. Four. We need more homers. No, I mean, games. I think that is what we need. I think that this is an example of micro targeting. And as the audience for everything shrinks in the world and ESPN did this during the BCS game where on one of their like ESPN or something, they had coaches talking about mm-hmm. the game. So this is like a continuing trend. And I have found that like during a national game. I mentioned this again with Vern Lundquist. You get annoyed if you watch your team all year, then the national guys come in and they don't know anything about the players. They get people's names wrong. They tell you the same exact story about Herman Johnson being the largest baby ever born in the state of Louisiana. LSU (laughs) fans will know what I'm talking about. This is just a different way, like with the stats guys, of conveying a kind of expertise that you don't get on a mainstream broadcast. And it shouldn't be like on an alternate channel to have the smart guys, but it's good to have the option and maybe um you know this we'll continue to see experiments and different like narrow casting of approaches the different right. slices the fans would want to watch ultimately what's going to help decide whether this sort of narrow casting continues is the reaction of sponsors and advertisers yeah but they also have all of these alternate channels and like cbs nbc fox espn all have different networks and they all have time to fill during these games that they have the the rights to so why don't why not well because if i'm spending x million dollars to advertise on the national network however many eyeballs i'm losing to the narrow cast 
and different advertisements right. over there are going to impact whether I want to continue doing it or not. Okay. All right. Let me toss in a quick word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can become a member at slate.com slash hangupplus, which will flag to the Slate powers that be that you're becoming a member because you love our show. So that would be doing us a solid, people. Membership allows you early access and discounts to events like the upcoming East Coast Superfest in New York on November 17th. We're in the political and culture gab fest combined with Hang Up and Listen to create a podcast, Voltron. You also get subscriber-only podcasts like the preview of David Plotz's interview series in which he talks to people like Stephen Colbert about how they do their jobs. Again, to sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. And thank you very much for your patronage. All right, next topic. The Georgia Bulldogs shut out Missouri 34 to nothing on Saturday, led by Nick Chubbs, 143 yards on 38 carries. Nick Chubb, better name than Todd Gurley? Oh, yeah. A name whose nickname should be a D nickname. What's your name is a nickname? Like his nickname should be Chubbingsworth. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. Uh, the Bulldogs fed the ball to Chubb, a.k.a. Chubbingsworth, because their star running back and Heisman contender Todd Gurley was suspended from the team indefinitely due to a possible violation of NCAA rules. That violation reportedly had to do with Gurley selling his signature. ESPN's Darren Ravel reported that Gurley was asking for between $8 and $25 for his signature, which is a very sad low amount, if you ask me. Guys should have been getting more. Uh, Georgia has pulled number three Bulldogs jerseys from its website. Not Gurley jerseys, just number three jerseys that coincidentally had the same number as the team's best player. They're obviously not Todd Gurley jerseys. The school would not want to profit from selling a jersey with an actual player's name on it because that would be wrong. But back to Gurley, the school is holding him out. My thinking on this, we were discussing this earlier. I think they're doing it because they fear that they would have to forfeit games if um, the NCAA ruled that he was ineligible. This happened with Manziel last year. He ended up having to sit out half a game for signing autographs, although it was never conclusively proven that he got money for it. But that kind of set the precedent for, like, basically nobody gives a shit about this. We're going to suspend the guy for half a game, and then he's going to come on and make the money gesture, and then we're just going to, like, kind of all scoff at this. But this is being taken seriously. This is the best player on this team, one of the best players in college football. Everybody seems pissed off that he's having to sit out. What can be done? What should be done about this, Mike? I think they should suspend him for a half a game and let him play and use a de facto common sense to combat over enforcement by the NCAA. I understand why the rule is in place, but I don't understand why the punishment is so severe or the perception of the punishment. I mean, come on, take a step back and say, maybe at every step in the process, should there be a rule against benefiting from your fame If we're having an amateur contest, yeah, that makes sense. I can understand that you would be able to use that as a loophole to essentially pay players, right? That is that is the problem, that if you say, hey, what's the big deal if someone sells an autograph, then a booster pays everyone on your team for an autograph, and all of a sudden, you have a paid team. Now, if you want a paid team, have a paid team, but this is just a workaround. You have to do things. If you're going to enforce amateurism, you have to have rules in place that prevent guys from getting paid. So I get that. And you also want a rule in place that if a team knowingly plays players who are ineligible, you can't benefit from that. So I get that. But take two steps back and say, all right, we understand what the guy did. NCAA comes in. You, the team, suspended him a game. We'll impose another game, and then you're fine. How about that? Well, the original sin is obviously amateurism, which leads to all of these contortions and, and rules 
But is amateurism a sin? I mean, in this case, because they make so much money. But, you know, if this were a women's lacrosse play, I mean, if you want to have the amateur discussion, have the amateurism discussion, I don't know per se that if these are the rules, how you don't enforce these rules. Right. The issue is that these are the rules. That's that's my issue. Right. Let's can we stipulate that it's a bullshit rule or that the system is a bullshit system? Well, I think we can stip- Yeah, we can stipulate that the but system if you is went bullshit. With, but if you, I'll just throw this out. But if you even went with what the Oakland court essentially recommended, a stipend, which people thought was you know good and decent, Gurley could still get paid twenty thousand dollars for his signature. Should that be allowed? And if so, then don't you just blow the doors open for having you know essentially paid teams and highest bidder type situations? And I think what what you're saying, Mike, is that. Even if the rule is bullshit and even if there were an alternate system where a player could get a stipend but still be allowed to profit off of his likeness, there are going to be some rules and the rules have to be enforced in some way. I mean, we hate the NCAA. We hate the arbitrariness. We hate the inexactitude of the way these things are enforced. We hate the circumstances. This is some like sleazeball memorabilia dealer trying to profit off of some kid's fame and turning him in, effectively shopping the story to the media when he feels like he's either spurned or maybe he just doesn't like Georgia. I don't know. I don't know the entire backstory. Well, the SB Nation reported that the guy was upset because Gurley started selling a signature to other people, which devalued the signatures that he had. So he right. turned on him and also that he's a Florida he's fan. He's a Florida fan, by the way. One interesting little side part of this is that SB Nation received this email from this memorabilia dealer and decided not to pursue the story initially. And after it came out, they issued a statement or they – Spencer Hall, our friend, whom we like. We like Spencer. Spencer and someone else wrote the, this story that sort of explained why they decided not to pursue the story. And part of it was a little bit sanctimonious that we think the rule is stupid and therefore we don't want to be contributing to doing the NCA's work for it. Journalistically, I completely disagree. I mean, this is a story and I'm not in the position to be making the, a judgment call on you know whether the NCA is good or bad. Um, I don't necessarily agree with sort of pursuing these sorts of things as a beat the way some people have done and then making and then appearing completely sanctimonious about the, the results. But if this falls in your lap, I'm not sure how you sort of say, I'm not going to write about it because I disagree. Someone's going to write about it and someone was going to write yeah. about it and someone did write about well, it. Well, I disagree with the earlier point about how there have to be rules, but I think we this, that would spiral into a whole other conversation about the NCA that we've had before. But the journalistic question is interesting. And I actually agreed with what Spencer and SB Nation and co. wrote there, because let's take the information that we have about the story, that basically the memorabilia dealer planted this with malicious intent to get this guy suspended. Mike, you said the intent of the rule is you don't want to have like a side door for a booster to be able to pay everyone on the team. Okay, well, what about if the enforcement mechanism is to suspend the guy? How about a booster for another team gets the guy to sign autographs and then calls it in and then he's suspended? Doesn't that affect but as a reporter, the integrity of the that's game? That's taking boosterism to the next level. That's awesome. You I don't think, think you can affect the team? You don't, <laughs> you, all you ever want to do is affect play. Yeah, get the other guys suspended. I, Honey trap, CIA, black ops, game on. Well, you're laughing, but that seems like exactly what, what happened, happened here. here. Awesome. So, so what's the journalistic role here then? I mean, probably it's not... 
get this email from this disgruntled memorabilia dealer and write a story. Probably it's find out whether anyone is actually taking this seriously at an administrative level. Because if Georgia plans to suspend this guy or the NCAA has already gotten wind of it, then, yeah, that's actually a story that's going to become public. Right. But it seemed like in this case that that was not the case, that they would have broken the story and brought it to the attention of Georgia. And this gets back to... One of the times when I was most upset about a journalistic thing on the show, people might remember, was this SI piece about Tyron Matthew, where mm-hmm. a lot of that story was about Picayune NCA violations that he may or may not have committed. He put up a poster there advertising was a, a party. No, he didn't put it up. Somebody someone put it up advertising that he would be there. Right. Someone from a nightclub put up a flyer with his likeness on it. And SI discovered this and reported it as a possible NCAA violation. And that, to me, is what you should not do as a journalist, play the role of traffic cop for the NCAA. This was not on the school's radar. This was not on the NCAA's radar. It's not entirely clear, I think, what the order of operations was here. Was he suspended because Georgia independently found out about this or independently meaning because of the memorabilia dealer contacted them, or was it because a story was broken that the media did perform the role of traffic cop here? And it seems like that's not what happened. Meter made. It was not meter made journalism that got this guy suspended. It was the memorabilia dealer, or it was the word filtering up, not directly through the media to the university, which took this proactive stance of suspending him, whether it was because they were afraid that they would be forced in the future to forfeit games if he continued to play, or because they wanted to get ahead of what would be a media shitstorm were something published about him having signed all of this memorabilia and taken money for it. Don't the teams know that the NCAA investigative arm sucks? <laughs> like, can't they stand up and say, yeah, you know what, we'll take our chances with your three people on payroll and looking ridiculous as Jameis Winston is shooting people with BB guns, allegedly raping people, yelling ridiculous things, quoting lyrics about consent that a rapist shouldn't quote. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you do your best. I mean, you know, obviously the teams are in league with the NCAA and the league does the bidding of the teams. But they're such idiots. So Winston is about to have a disciplinary hearing at Florida State a couple years now after the alleged sexual assault happened. It's been well documented by the New York Times in a story earlier this year and now in another story um, just this past week, kind of the incredibly shoddy work that was done by the school and the Tallahassee police. And now the latest story is about how um, Florida State football players seem to get special treatment from the police department. There's a story about a 911 call, and the, the cop who fielded the call immediately had to contact his supervisor because it involved an FSU player. It seemed like there was like kind of a protocol there, and there's a history of guys maybe getting lighter treatment. So with Winston, Michael McCann of SI suggests maybe he should drop out of school at this point, because if there is a disciplinary hearing, then the statute of limitations is not run out on potential civil litigation. That stuff could be subpoenaed by the accuser. What a shit show this whole thing is. And it seems un- extremely unlikely to me that he'll drop out of school. Jimbo Fisher, the coach, has said that he will play this upcoming weekend against Notre Dame. It wouldn't surprise me, though, if you know he doesn't finish out the season 
somehow. It's just not, this is not going to end well for him, for the school. Mike, how do you think this will play out? How do you think it should play out? Oh, Jameis Winston's going to play. They'll probably lose a game uh, or two. The spotlight will come off him. He won't win another Heisman, and he'll be drafted in the first round. Uh, How should it play out? Let's go back uh, to the founding sins of college football. I mean, it should play out that the state attorney general or some governing body starts looking very closely at the relationship between the on-campus police department, the Tallahassee Police Department. Tallahassee Police should not be allowed to make extra money for taking on um, assignments regarding the the, uh, football team. They should be told that on social media they need to cool it with their football team fandom if they're going to be the ones who are investigating the football team. And in this huge New York Times report, it shows not only the Jameis Winston case, but a really disturbing case of domestic violence, which wasn't investigated. Then a couple things which were as so the really disturbing things the rape and the domestic violence the police work seems shoddy in the less disturbing incidents the police work seems bordering on criminal such as this one guy who clearly stole a scooter and the uh, Tallahassee cop put pressure on the scooter's owner to say come on you don't want to say it's stolen this guy's a football player you don't want to say it's stolen like met him in a parking lot at night yeah and just said come on maybe you're insane maybe you forgot maybe whatever don't ruin this guy's life he you know he totally interfered in the investigation he was supposed to head and then there were all these incidents of shooting people with bb guns and it all depends what we think of bb guns or pellet guns but just florida state football players driving around doing funny type drive-bys shooting at innocent people that was brushed aside under the table because they were football players, they should feel shame. This definitely calls out for like a special prosecutor, right? I mean, it just seems like everyone here is completely in the thrall of the football program. And the disciplinary hearing does, it's going to be outside people. I mean, it's on the one hand, I think that's good. On the other hand, it seems like something that Winston's attorney would just challenge and I don't know if it'll stand up. They're just selecting people from outside of the school for a school disciplinary hearing. The whole thing is just a complete catastrophe. Well, the, and the question and of- had, and let's also say that Tala, uh, Florida State has done nothing until it knew the New York Times was breaking the story. And then it started getting the ball rolling. But without the journalists in this case, nothing would have been done. And you say special prosecutor, Josh. I mean, what? seems like is needed here is for someone to investigate the entire apparatus, to investigate the university, not to investigate the kids shooting a BB guns or someone stealing a motor scooter. I mean, this is something that it's the culture of tolerance of all of this that needs to be investigated. And it would be Florida State University officials that would be held accountable, not unlike what happened at Penn State. And Todd Gurley suspended because maybe the NCAA would rule him ineligible for selling autographs for $8. All right. Moving right along. Moving right along. The United States gymnastics teams dominated the world championships in Nanning, China, winning four gold, two silver, and four bronze medals. The women won the team championships, and one woman in particular cemented her dominance of the sport. The U.S.'s Simone Biles won four gold medals, including the individual all-around title. Biles also won the all-around at the 2013 World Championships, and her six World Championship golds are now the most ever for an American woman. But considering that she hasn't yet competed in the Olympics and that NBC's coverage of the 2014 World Championships consisted of four hours of tape-delayed footage, you'd be forgiven for not knowing about her dominance. Here to explain it to us is Devorah Myers, who is at the World Gymnastics Championships in China. She is now joining us by phone. Hello, Devorah. Thanks for having me. Sure. And you're working on a book about gymnastics. That's why you were there. It's going to come out before 
2016 tentative title, The End of the Ten. Good title. Mm-hmm. So you've been following uh, Simone for a while now. She was not in the uh, London Games. And so for those of us who tune in to gymnastics once every four years, explain to us who she is, kind of where she came from. So Simone Biles, as you noted, was not at the 2012 Olympics because she wasn't yet age eligible. She only turned 16 last year, 2013, and she kind of made her first big splash before the World Championships at the 2013 American Cup, where she came in second, but she would have won had she not fallen off the balance beam. That was really the first time I think I started paying attention to her, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit that as someone who follows gymnastics really closely. And the first thing I noted, I was I was at the American Cup, and I never seen anyone, man or woman, ever tumble that high. And my mind was just blown immediately. I was, she was doing a double twisting, double somersault on floor, which is basically the hardest thing you can do. And the first thing I thought when I saw her was she could do a triple twisting, double somersault. From there, I started to like look at her gymnastics, and less than eight months later, she won the world all-around title. And she hasn't really competed much since she won the world title, except for at some regional meets in the United States. So I was really interested to see how well she would do at the world championships when she had to defend her title. Now, she's 17 now. Is she coming of age at a unfortunate time? Was she born in the wrong year in terms of the Olympics? Because we've got two more years, the risk of injury, the risk of bodily development that could affect how she performs. Those are all real factors, aren't there? I mean, can we be assured that she's going to be the next big thing at the Olympics? Uh, no, no way can you be assured that she's the next big thing at the Olympics just because, as you noted, gymnasts do, do get injured at, at inopportune times. Um, and yeah, and two years is a really long time to go for any athlete when you're thinking about the Olympics. And yeah, it, maybe it would be perfect if she turned 16 next year, competed at the World Championships, and then competed at the Olympics in Rio. Maybe that would be perfect timing. But she's really an exceptional case in the sense that her talent is so prodigious that I think the primary concern is with her staying healthy. And also, if she makes it to the Olympics healthy and wins, keeps winning, she's going to be under just an incredible amount of pressure. That's the other concern, that if she you knows she wins again next year and then goes into the Rio Games as a three-time world champion, that's going to be a lot of pressure. Look, obviously, the great athletes want to win and want to win in the Olympics. It's the biggest stage. But within the gymnastics community is compiling a lot of world championships. Is that looked at as uh, even more impressive or just as impressive as the Olympics win? Just because Olympics does, as Stefan indicated, come down to timing and luck so much? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, as speaking as a gymnastics fan, you definitely have a lot more respect for the athletes who win many competitions as opposed to winning maybe just one or two. So I definitely think if she can keep this going, people will be super impressed with her if they aren't already. And at this World Championships, um, on the men's side, we have the most successful, most dominant male gymnast of all time who's competing, Koei Uchimura of Japan, who is the defending Olympic champion. And, you know, in many respects, the reaction to him is somewhat similar. His opponents don't, like, respect him. They don't know how to beat him. And but there's a great deal of respect for how long he's he's you know going. He's certainly going to 2016. He's indicating he might go further. That's also kind of cool. That I mean, arguably the best male and the best female, possibly of all time, could be going into the 2016 Olympics. But as many have noted, it's 
that Koei Uchimura wins is winning over a pretty tough field. Men's gymnastics globally is much more competitive than women's gymnastics. So it's not, you know, not to detract from Simone Biles, who is incredible, but the women's field is comparatively weaker. There aren't as many countries in contention for the medals right now. So you mentioned Biles's amazing tumbling and how she can get higher than anyone that you've ever seen. You've written... A- it's very fascinating the kind of ways that we describe gymnasts, talking about how somebody like Sean Johnson in the past, for example, is athletic and how that can be kind of a pejorative. Can you talk about kind of the distinction between the quote unquote athletic gymnasts and the more like Nastia Lucan style graceful gymnasts? Well, I mean, women's gymnastics obviously has its roots in dance. So a lot of the dance principles and dance aesthetics apply in a lot of fans, especially of especially people who remember the Soviet heyday of the sport really well, like someone like me, you know, really sort of a little nostalgic for, you know, these acrobats who were also spectacular and beautiful dancers and had these long lines. And the American brand of gymnastics has been a little bit more of the power gymnast, such as, you know, as you said, like, you know, Mary Lou Renham has been the first one really. And then you had Kim Zemeskel and you had Sean Johnson and right now I think the power gymnasts are really accepted and people want them. But for a while, there is kind of this, there's like this uncertainty, ambivalence about them. Like, you know, someone will always like retort with, it's called artistic gymnastics, as though that sort of settles the debate. And generally, when they're talking about a gymnast who is sort of a more muscular, shorter, less lean sort of look, they are not immediately judged as being artistic. The way that a lankier build kind of gets the benefit of the doubt. Oh, well, she has long lines, so she's artistic. I do think, though, that the power gymnasts have been really successful in the last several years, and I do think that there is a little bit of less talk about them not being artistic. All right, Devorah, you also wrote a piece last year for Deadspin that got into the issue of race and gymnastics uh, after the World Championships last year an Italian gymnast and a spokesperson for the Italian Gymnastics Federation made what amounted to racist comments after Simone Biles won the gold medal. The gymnast said that maybe next time we should also paint our skin black so that we could win too. And the spokesman said, is gymnastics suiting colored features more and more to the point athletes wish they were black? And the implication is that black gymnasts are more athletic and the white gymnasts are more balletic and that there is some inherent bias against the balletic form of gymnastics versus the more athletic style. Do you think that this is a real issue in gymnastics? And, and or do you see any lingering effects of those comments last year? I don't see any lingering effects of those comments last year. I think the sort of consensus around Simone Biles is she is a once-in-a-lifetime sort of talent. And it really doesn't boil down to race because no one spoke about Gabby Douglas this way, for instance. There was no sense of inevitability around Gabby Douglas. There was no sense that she could do anything. There was this idea that she was talented and she was good at certain things and not so great at other things, but there wasn't this feeling that she has unbelievable gifts compared to her competitors. With Simone Biles, it's the sense that she is just in a different league altogether and she can do virtually anything. She's just referred to as an exceptional case and has really little to do with her race. Yeah, and even if those comments about painting the skin black, 
I mean, obviously they were stupid. And then as you got to in Deadspin, there is that dichotomy between the uh, the coded language for the powerful athlete and the coded language for the artistic athlete. You know, Gabby Douglas was more of the lithe, artistic type gymnast. So it didn't even break down there. But I wanted to get to that debate. Maybe Biles is so good that it blows the debate out of the water. But it does seem to me that artistic versus athletic, which is what we saw in like Kerrigan versus Harding, Often, the athletic is more empirical. The number of times you could, uh, you know, rotate on a move, the amount of height you get, you could put a tape measure there, where the artistic is so subjective that people who, you know, think of themselves as the, uh, as the guardians of the sport will love the artistic in a way that I think is somewhat driven by a need to say, you know, we understand this more and outsiders can't get it. And as hard as it is to put your finger on what is artistic, that's consciously or subconsciously what they like about it. Yes, I would agree with that. And one of the things, you know, I've been doing a lot of work because, you know, we no longer have this perfect 10. And one of the main complaints that people have about the new scoring system is that it doesn't reward artistry. Artistry is dead. And what I really feel like I'm hearing is, A, a lot of nostalgia for an era in gymnastics that was quite amazing but wasn't necessarily fueled by the way it was scored. It was, it was fueled by Soviet dominance and the importance that ballet holds in Russian culture. So when the leading country really esteems ballet and they do these incredible acrobatics, they didn't skimp on difficulty. <laughs> so that was the standard of the 80s and the early 90s. And I think people are nostalgic for that. And to some degree, I feel like people want a time machine to go back in that direction And now we've kind of moved into an era of sport in general that's a little more empirical, a little more data-driven. And people are kind of reacting against that. Um, Let's finish up by just talking about Biles as a human being rather than a system for accumulating lots of points. Um, She was very afraid of a bee. Um, We know know this much (laughs) about her. What is her personality like and... I guess I am going to end up commodifying her. What is her personality like? And do you think that she's going to become this huge star in the next couple of years, kind of prior to the Olympics or irrespective of the Olympics? You know, from what I've heard, she's, you know, just as she seems, she's really fun loving. Her coach always talks about how she has to keep practices fun and how, you know, she wasn't a standout junior because they didn't push her very young. They had this sense that, you know, they had to wait with her. She was really rough around the edges as a junior, actually. She was one of those kids who could do these incredible tricks, but they were so messy, you didn't pay attention to them. And then she cleaned up, and the reason her coach has stated is that, listen, you know, I just knew that Simone needed to have fun. It wasn't the right time to push that, to push that kind of flexibility and cleaning up her form. And I think to some degree, you know, you see that she's really playful on the sideline. She's always cheering. She's very gifable. There's a great um, little snippet of her, like, literally tackling Michaela Maroney in a hug at the U.S. Classic in Chicago a couple, a few months ago. And she's exactly as she seems. And I do think that her obvious talent and her wins combined with that kind of outgoing personality can make her a huge star. So right now, she has committed to do NCAA gymnastics at UCLA, which means that she hasn't accepted any money, no endorsement deals. But that obviously can change as it gets closer to Olympics. Interesting. Um, well, Devorah, you, I think, are the best gymnastics writer out there. People should follow you if they're interested 
in the she's sport. She's the best from an artistic standpoint. I'll give you that. All right. Well, we can debate. We could debate this all day, but that's that's my opinion. I mean, follow her sentence length. I'm just <laughs> saying, if you measure it. But go ahead. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at Devorah Myers, and we'll be looking out for your book prior to the 2016 Olympics. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Now time for After Balls. Stefan, do you realize there is a move named after Simone Biles? The Biles. Just the Biles. Just the Biles? It's just the Biles. It is a double layout, half out. I think the actual move would maybe be more interesting as an af- after ball moniker. Mike Pesco is going to do the double layout, half out at our next live show. So please come <laughs> and watch that. Uh, Mike, what is your double layout, half out? There was a tie in the NFL yesterday. It was between the Panthers and the Bengals. Two cats went at it, and no cat could stand triumphant. Cat fight. Yes, 37-37 draw. A tie game has happened in each of the three seasons since the overtime rules were altered in 2012. You know, there used to be a lot of tie games in football. When they changed the rules to overtime in 74, there uh, stopped being so many tie games. Since 74, only 20 tied games. But you know, from 20 to 73... There were 258 tied games. And the 1920 season, the first season recognized as an NFL season, even though it was the APFA, that season was lousy with ties. How lousy? 17 ties in that season. And keep in mind that one of the team's records, the Muncie Flyers, was 0-1-0. So teams played a different number of games. They ranged usually from 8 to the Decatur Staley's played 13 games. Now, the number one team that year was the Akron Pros. They went 8-0-3. They had three tied games. The number two team was the Decatur Staley's. They went 10-1-2. Now, Decatur and the Buffalo All-Americans, by dint of having more wins than the Akron Pros, said we should have won the league, but it was voted that the Akron Pros, with the 8-0-3 record, would win the league. But you know what? It really came down to that last game, that last game between the Decatur Staley's and the Akron Pros. And leading up to that, so many interesting things happened. The Akron Pros had Fritz Pollard. Maybe you heard of him. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. In 1921, not the season we're talking about, the next season, Fritz Pollard, an African-American, would come to coach the Akron Pros. That season, Paul Robeson also played for the Akron Pros. The Akron Pros in the 1920 season had three ties, were scored on once. They gave up seven points that year. So yeah, a couple of their ties were 0-0 ties. So let's go to two of those 0-0 ties. These were the last two games of the season. The Akron Pros come into Buffalo to play the Buffalo All-Americans. Problem for Buffalo, they had played the day before. They were tired from their 7-3 victory against the Canton Bulldogs. That game also saw the occasion of the first trade in the NFL. Bob Nash was traded from the Pros to the All-Americans. The details of this trade sold, really, for $300 and 5% of the gate. It was the first deal in NFL history. However, bad rains, sloppy play, only 3,000 people showed up, so 5% of the gate, not that much, a 0-0 tie. So the next week, December 12th, Akron against Decatur. The venue, Cubs Park in Chicago. This is where George Hallis, the Staley's coach, decided to move the game. It was a hard-fought affair. On a couple of occasions, the teams almost scored. 
Decatur had hired Patty Driscoll from the Chicago Cardinals to play for the Staley's for this one game. That's not allowed. It doesn't matter. But 12,000 fans cheered as they saw a 0-0 game. Who should have won? Well, I will now read from a contemporaneous account of the game. Decatur and Akron battle to tie. This is from the Milwaukee Sentinel, December 13th, 1920. The Staley's of Decatur, Illinois, and Akron professional football teams <laughs> battle to a 0-0 tie here on Sunday before a crowd estimated at 12,000. Although the field was heavy, Sternum and Hallis and Driscoll, who entered the game in the second period in place of Lanham, got away for long runs for the Staley's. Pollard, McCormick, and Bierce were stars for Akron. The Akron team threatened to score twice, but the ball went to the Staley's when ineligible Akron men received forward passes near the Staley's goal. In the third period, the Staley's were near a score through a long, twisting run by Sternemann. But the Akron's held, and Sternemann missed a field goal from the 20-yard line. By about six feet. That's it. That's the entire account of this, the championship game in the first NFL season. By comparison, the next story in the Milwaukee Sentinel, Vancouver Shooter leads all marksmen just as long. And Knights of Columbus organized pin body. That's pretty much the same length, too. So football not getting a huge amount of coverage. Zero, zero ties not helping football. But ties they were. Hats off to the Akron pros, the undefeated team. Uh, Stefan, what's your double layout? Half out. In April, the muckraking English journalist Andrew Jennings published his latest work about soccer's governing body, FIFA. The title of Jennings' ebook is Omerta, Sepp Blatter's Organized Crime Family. Chapters include looting Brazilian football, knifing Mandela in the back, and how the FIFA crooks got away with it. Omerta follows Jennings' 2006 book, Foul, The Secret World of FIFA, Bribes, Vote Rigging, and Ticket Scandals. One could certainly make a movie out of Jennings' reporting, which is filled with beblazered sportocrats passing brown paper bags stuffed with cash. That movie, however, is not United Passions, a dramatic history of a noble, high-minded, and valorous FIFA starring three name actors who apparently will do anything for a paycheck, Tim Roth, is our star, Sepp Blatter. Sam Neill is Blatter's mentor and predecessor, Zhao Havelange. And the ever-bilious Gerard Depardieu is FIFA's founding father, Jules Rimet. United Passions is the heaven's gate and triumph of the will of sports biopics. The script is hilariously stilted. The acting is parodic. The plot is a flaccid, hagiographic concatenation of myth, exaggeration, invention, and deception. In it, the men of FIFA, especially Air Ladder are principal gentlemen with progressive views who are hell-bent on saving the world through the beautiful game, a phrase uttered in a scene set in 1904, but one that actually wasn't used to describe association football until the 1950s. From the get-go, FIFA's leaders are visionaries and heroes, a band of renegade continentals who challenge the monocle and stovepipe hat-wearing English lords who rule the game. The English are portrayed as arrogant, bigoted pricks who mock the frogs who dare suggest an association and proceed to insult every other corner of the globe. Here's one educating Remy's daughter. Well, young lady, the natives of Africa are stupid and undisciplined. It's just their nature. How could they possibly be expected to appreciate the subtleties of the game Invented by the West. Thank you. Are you having a pleasant evening? Ah, Monsieur Rimet, this young person is your daughter. Indeed she is. Uh Oh, I'm sorry to say she understands nothing about the game of football. She's under the impression that Negroes could compete with whites at the sport. Really? Yes, you should send her back to her sewing and the art of good housekeeping. Her pretty little head would be filled with less nonsense. I beg your pardon. (laughs) Negroes playing football. 
Why not women while we're at? Oh, that would be quite amusing, huh? <laughs> Quite amusing. Yes, FIFA recognized the footballing potential of blacks and women in the 1920s. It also anticipated the moral bankruptcy and threat to world order of Germany and Italy and stood forcefully against the Nazis. Things really take off when Havelange assumes control. The foppish Brazilian sanctimoniously lectures the, of course, racist Englishman he defeats that he won the presidency because I took the rest of the world seriously. Jennings has written that Havelange's priorities were his bribes and contract kickbacks. And the the movie does eventually cast him as a coddler of Argentinian dictators and tolerator of corruption within. Why throw Havelange under the bus? Because FIFA's true hero has arrived. Joseph Sepp Blatter, marketing rainmaker, moral compass, tireless global visionary. We should be concentrating on the women's teams. How about taking a break? You're burning yourself out. When the World Cup is held here, in the USA... In Asia, whoa, then I'll take a break. Airblotter alone fights and triumphs over the dark forces operating inside FIFA. When FIFA's coffers are mysteriously emptied, Sepp writes a personal check to pay staffers. When Sepp succeeds Avalanche, he tells FIFA's cronies that the slightest breach of ethics will be severely punished. Violin swelling, Sepp overcomes unspecified betrayals and is triumphantly reelected, continuing FIFA's mission to leave its imprint on the history of mankind. It should come as no surprise that this steaming $30 million pile of propaganda was financed almost entirely by FIFA itself. The Daily Mail even reported that SEP personally ordered changes in the script. Screened at Cannes in May, United Passions has bombed at the European box office, though I'm sure SEP believes an Oscar is imminent, one that he can place next to the Nobel Peace Prize that he is convinced he deserves. If you'd like more United Passions, our friend Tim Marchman at Deadspin has transcribed several of the film's most amusing scenes. Anyone say it is not possible? Almost. There is almost a scene where someone says, I was waiting for it is not possible. I was waiting for Sepp to say of bribery, it is not possible, but it was not possible. Hey, uh, Stefan, what about Sepp winning the Nobel Prize? I'm teeing you up. Go. Take it. <laughs> it is not possible. <laughs> there you go. Josh, what's your double layout half out? So the Dallas Cowboys may actually be good, which is a strange and terrifying prospect. But that was not the only thing that disturbed me about the end of the Seahawks-Cowboys game on Sunday evening. With two minutes and 30 seconds to go, Dallas had the ball up by four. I'm setting the scene. Dallas up four. No timeouts for Seattle. That do, you meant- want some, do you want some NFL films music? I do not. That meant the Cowboys needed just one first down to seal the game. Maybe some other time. This is too important. On first down, DeMarco Murray runs the ball for no gain. But there's a penalty against Seattle for illegal use of hands. That gives Dallas an automatic first down. So you'd think the game would be over. But no, Stefan, the game was not over. According according to NFL rule 4-3-2-F, the clock stops after a penalty in the last five minutes of the game. So that essentially gave the Seahawks a free timeout because they themselves committed a penalty. That meant the Cowboys could not deal, kneel down just yet. Dallas had to keep running plays. Eventually, the Cowboys themselves committed a penalty, again stopping the clock, allowing Seattle to get the ball back with a little more than a minute to go. It sounds like this game sucked. Russell Wilson then threw an interception, but that is not the point. This is a dumb rule, and it needs to be changed. Hang up, super fans. will remember that I talked about this last year. And I'm going to keep talking about it until the NFL changes this rule, which means I will be talking about it forever. The Seahawks did not commit the penalty on purpose, but that play illustrates 
how trailing teams are incentivized to get penalized on purpose to stop the clock in a late game situation. When I afterballed this uh, previously, Howard Wasserman of the Sports Law blog wrote that this is the exact case where something he calls a limiting rule is warranted. Um, As he defines it, it's a special rule, a limiting rule, designed to recalibrate cost-benefit disparities that appear if some plays are left to the game's ordinary rules. So the canonical example here is the infield fly rule in normal play. If you want to drop a fly ball on purpose, you know, knock yourself out. But um, if there are two or three men on base, you do not want the defense to let an easy pop fly drop on purpose in order to set up a cheap double play. Infield fly rule exists. It's a limiting rule. It's good. Everyone's happy. Um, So Wasserman writes that clock stopping on a penalty uh, at the end of an NFL game has all four features that define when a limiting rule should be warranted. Number one, and I'm quoting him here, the play produces a significantly inequitable cost-benefit disparity as the trailing defensive team can stop the clock and give itself more time to get the ball back to the detriment of the leading offensive team, which receives no benefit from the play. Number two, the defense entirely controls the play as the offense can do nothing to stop an intentional penalty or the clock from stopping, even by declining the penalty. Number three, the cost-benefit disparity arises because the defense intentionally commits a penalty, something teams do not want to do under ordinary rules and practices, and something that rulemakers probably do not want them doing. And number four, the opportunity to gain those advantages incentivizes the defense to make this move regularly. Okay, when the opposing team commits a penalty... You have the option to accept the penalty or decline it. So there's an obvious fix here. That's why this is so galling. You can have the option to let the clock run if you want. There's an easy fix. I am on the David Plot side here. We talk about this all the time. Oh, they should change this rule. They should change that rule. And he says, you know, I'm a conservative. You know, the rules work pretty well. You should, you know, not change rules lightly. There could be unintended consequences. There are no unintended consequences here. All you do is say, if the defensive team commits a penalty, you can choose to have the clock run or choose not to have the clock run. It's such an easy fix. I feel like people don't even understand the concept here. I feel like you're giving me a blank look. It'll change. What you need need to happen is this. I need like a slogan? No, what you need to happen is this. Time's running out and they're, uh, can they get the field goal unit on the field? And you just need members of the offense to take off their helmets draw the 15-yard penalty, and everyone will say, what the hell just happened? And it will underline the fact that getting a penalty can stop the clock. I'm trying to help the NFL before such a catastrophe happens, but nobody wants to listen to me. It requires a catastrophe. The announcers need to start yelling, take your helmet off, take your helmet off to stop the clock. Well, there are some cases where there are penalties that come with an automatic runoff. Mm -hmm. I don't know if taking the helmet off is one of those penalties, but you you just have to be strategic about it if you're if you're a defense, what intentional uh, penalty you commit. All right, we love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed, slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash hangup and listen is that address. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.